beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. June is my birthday month. And birthdays make me nostalgic and reflective. Okay, fine. I'm always nostalgic and reflective. I have a whole show about being reflective here at 10 things to tell you but birthdays of course are special versions of being introspective about our lives right it kind of gives us a marker of time to look back at our past to look forward to our future and because my birthday is in the sixth month of the year here in June And in fact, in the middle of the sixth month of the year, it's a perfect excuse for me to sit down and really take stock of not just my life, because it's my birthday, but also the year. It's, you know, a halfway mark in the year. Of course, I also, at the end of the year, beginning of the year, around New Year's, also do like a whole reflective prompts, journaling thing But right now it's my birthday, and so I want to share with you some of the things that I learned when I was 41, and now that I'm here, freshly turned 42. This is not a self-indulgent exercise, or I mean, 
if it is, fine. But I'm not only doing it for self-indulgence on the internet. As always, me sharing my stuff is meant to be an example of how you could possibly share your stuff. Not publicly necessarily, but with a friend, with a partner, with your journal. I just know that I can't be the only one that feels this way around their birthday. I'm sure a lot of you do too, but maybe you do not feel the need to sit down and write out 10 thoughts, but maybe you will next time your big day rolls around. You know, I have a complicated relationship with birthdays. I mean, we all do, I'm sure, for lots of reasons. Aging, having attention on us, not getting enough attention, childhood stuff. I think a lot of my birthday angst comes from the fact that I went to summer camp my whole childhood. I started when I was seven. I went until I was 17. And it was a summer camp that was throughout the month of June. And so I was at camp for 10 of my childhood birthdays from seven to 17, from turning eight to turning 18. I had every single one of those birthdays at my summer camp. And so while the camp I went to did a big hoopla when you had a birthday and you got extra ice cream and all of that kind of thing, I also naturally every single year had a pretty big bout of homesickness on my birthday. It was hard to be away from my parents and my siblings and my home and my friends. I loved camp. I had great friends at camp. I even had kind of birthday twins at camp, but I think that it wore this groove in my soul around birthdays and sort of feeling like I'm not in the right place, feeling homesick for somewhere. Even when I celebrate my birthdays, as I mostly do in adulthood, at home, I still have this feeling like I'm in the wrong place, I'm with the wrong people. There's almost like a, not a panic, Panic is too strong of a word, but they're just these feelings. I have feelings on my birthday, as I'm sure lots of you do too. So I'm just mentioning that of like birthdays in adulthood are complicated, maybe, but I genuinely feel so lucky that I continue to have them year after year. And so with all of that, I'm going to get down to the business of sharing with you 10 thoughts on my last year mostly things I've learned or things that I've been thinking about. And I've done this on my birthday, either publicly here on the show or to myself for a really long time. When I sat down to kind of make these notes, kind of write out some thoughts around my birthday, when I sat down this year, it was really overwhelming because my birthday last year, of course, June 2020, was so unusual. We were months into the pandemic We were still in that very fearful stage, but we were also, you know, long enough into it that we were bored and tired and there was no end in sight. And, you know, it was just June of 2020 for lots of reasons, political unrest also. When I think back to it now, when I think back to a year ago, it just feels like I have way more than 10 thoughts here. It feels like more than just 12 months ago, where we're sitting in this place, this very uncomfortable place that summer 2020 was. And I almost just don't even know how to quantify all these thoughts. I don't even know how to make sense of them 
in the same way that I would in the other years, because when we're thinking about what we have learned in the last year, it was so unusual. It was so not a normal year that I don't even know what categories to start in. Are we talking about personal, political, health, mental health, relational? I mean, right? It's just, it's a lot to take in. It feels like we were all going about our normal life of learning and thriving. Like we were all in the English class of life, if you will. If we had only studied English, we were really into English. And then all of a sudden, without warning, we suddenly had to go to math class and learn math. And we are unprepared for math. We do not understand math. We are English literature learning people. And so (laughs) that's what 2020 felt like to me, like a whole new subject of which we are unfamiliar and which our brains are not ready for. So these are the circumstances under which I'm coming to you with my thoughts of my 41st year because it was like a whole new subject was undertaken. But I'm going to try and make sense of some of this anyway. The first thing, number one, the first thing that really keeps ringing in my ears, it's a, it's a drumbeat right now in my life and has been for a while now, is that navigating the joy-grief balance is way harder than navigating a work-life balance. I know I said something like this on a show recently, and I'm just going to say it again because like I said, it is coming up for me every single day. That in my earlier adulthood, when I felt like there was a lot of chatter around a work-life balance and can we have it all and how to maintain relationships while also pursuing a career and sort of a lot of this messaging that you get around your young adulthood as you're trying to learn how to be a wholly formed human person, what I have realized in the last little while, especially in the last year, has been Work-life balance is something that you can figure out or not. If it's a myth or if it's something that you can work on and create better habits around or whatever, that is a whole different thing and a much more, frankly, manageable thing than the deeper work of adulthood as life goes on and, and more life experience is had of balancing our highest highs and our lowest lows when they are happening at the same time. And this just has never been more true for me than in the last year. Of course, I've had really difficult dark seasons in my life. And of course, I've had truly wonderful, wonderful, beautiful years and seasons that were amazing. But never until recently have those highs and lows been happening at the same time. And that is just enormously difficult on an emotional level to calibrate. It affects so much of your emotional energy. It affects your sleep. It affects your health. It is very discombobulating to not know how to feel on a regular basis. You just truly don't know how to feel. And this is what I have felt in the last year when we're going through a worldwide pandemic that is very scary and affected our family directly. And then also I'm reaching a career pinnacle that I've wanted my whole entire life in publishing my first book. Also, we've had some really wonderful personal things happen in our family life. We moved houses, which I'm going to talk about more in a minute, but we you know, found a new wonderful place to live while we also have some really difficult 
heartbreaking relational things happening in our extended family behind the scenes. Some of these things are happening literally on the same day. We are given just incredible news and then we are also just having our hearts broken. And this is hard. And I know some of you have felt this same thing and you just don't know what to say about it when others ask, you know, how are you? You don't know how to properly celebrate or grieve. It sort of just becomes, or at least it has for me, kind of a one foot in front of the other scenario. And in that case, some of these things are canceling the other out in in some senses. They're washing each other out and that you are never getting to feel this exuberant joy that you would about something in any other circumstance, nor are you able to properly mourn something or heal from something else because you're not all the way going into the depths of that difficult thing either. You're really just living in this middle place. And middle place is not always code word for hard or mediocre or neutral neutrality because it's not that either. It's just a stuckness. And the more that I've been living in this place for months and months now, the more I've started to notice that this is happening with other people too. I'm sure it has always been happening with other people, but when you are feeling something so acutely, you sometimes notice that someone else is doing that too. You know, I'll see on Instagram that someone is mourning the loss of a loved one and they're also newly in love. And so they're holding those things. Or someone is going through the stress of unemployment, having lost their job or something like that, but then they're also welcoming a new baby or starting over in a new place they're excited about. Like a lot of these dichotomies are all around me in a way that I'm noticing more. And so I wonder if you relate to this. I wonder if you relate to this bittersweetness that I'm noticing that makes us feel out of sync. For me, this is ending up feeling like I'm cold when everyone's hot. I'm hot when everyone's cold. Daily, I feel like I'm walking out of a dark room into the bright beautiful sunlight and I'm just blinking at how harsh that light is and how good it feels on my skin at the same time so this was a lot of analogies I did a lot of metaphors in these minutes but I hope you understand what I'm saying that this is not what I expected out of the last year this joy grief balance It has kept me very wobbly. It has kept me feeling not like myself off and on. And I really think that it will, when I look back at this year in time, I really think it will be a thing that stands out to me. It's just how off kilter I kept being knocked, even when things were going great, (laughs) even when things were truly fun and amazing around the launch of my book and making this show and creating a side project and like I'm really excited about some of the things in my life but they are also alongside hard hard things so that was number one that was my wordy number one navigating joy grief balance all right number two I learned I have a long way to go with friendships this has been a humbling one this is one I have talked about on the show a few different times on a few different friendship episodes including one from February called Old Friends, New Friends. And this has just sort of been a reckoning with myself because I value 
the friends in my life as much as anything else that is important to me. I mean, my friendships come right after family for me in terms of what I want to put a priority on, what I pay lip service to, what I feel in my heart. But what I pay lip service to and how I feel turns out is not always translating to my actions. And I just learned in the last year that I could stand to be a lot better at friendship. Now, I think I'm a good friend in the moment, like face to face when we are together. I love to laugh and listen and, you know, friends are the best. But that behind the scenes hard work of maintaining relationships, calling people, checking in, showing up, sending a gift, sending a text, all of those things that it takes to maintain healthy, loving friendships. I learned the hard way and like halfway by accident in the last year that I am not getting an A plus on that. I'm getting like a D. And this has been embarrassing, humbling. I hate knowing that I've hurt people. I hate knowing that I have ghosted people when that, again, isn't a reflection of how I feel about them. It's just my own stuff. And I've had to try to put in place rules or to-dos or however you want to put it around my friendships, which I, you know, that's not something I had thought about much before. That is like, you know, homework. Like that doesn't feel like how you want to spend time or you don't even want to admit that you need to put be a good friend on your to-do list. But I have to. If I don't, I won't, it turns out. So this is like at the beginning of marriage when people who've been married a long time tell you to schedule marital time together and you're like, oh no, we won't ever need to do that. We love each other so much. You will not need to remind us to have to remember our relationship, if you know what I mean. But you just do. Everybody gets there. Everybody realizes, oh yeah, we got to make this a priority. And if making this a priority means... We have it on a to-do list so it doesn't get forgotten, so it is part of our rhythm and routine, and that's just what we got to do. I have never heard this similar analogy applied to friendships. I had heard people talk about loneliness. I've talked a lot about my own loneliness when I didn't have very many friendships. I've heard people talk about you know navigating tricky aspects of friendships if, I don't know, you disagree on something fundamentally or something like that. I hadn't heard anyone still haven't really heard anyone talk about just like being a good friend in the same way that we talk about as a general rule to be healthy. You know, we all know how to be healthy. We don't all choose to be healthy every day, myself included, but we like we know what the general rules are. Same is true with friendships. We know generally what makes a good friend and what friends should do for one another and all of that. But if we aren't acting on it, if we aren't actually doing those steps, our friendships are going to be affected and they might disappear completely. And we need our friendships. We need to make maintaining our friendships a real priority. And by we, obviously, I mean me. Because when I've talked about this a little bit publicly before, a lot of people did not relate. It is very natural and easy for people to be a good friend. So possibly I'm the only one. 
I will say it's natural and easy for me to feel lots of love for my friends. I have all the feelings. I have all the affection in my heart. But what I'm really having to train myself to do is to take that affection and put it into action. And that's something I learned in my 41st year when I was 41, and I did not expect to learn that. Okay, number three. Number three is something I already knew and have actually even preached on publicly, but I learned it in a whole different way in the last year. And number three is your space matters. And this goes for if you live in a studio apartment or if you live in a mansion on a hill. Your space and how you feel in your space absolutely affects your mood, your work, your choices, if you feel creative, if you feel blah, if mental health is something that you have to pay a lot of attention to in your life, know that your space plays a huge role in that. And I know that not all of us have a ton of choices about our space always. You know, if you live in a dorm, the dorm sort of is what it is. If you live in a rental, maybe you're prohibited from, you know, painting the walls or putting things up on the wall. But in as much as you can muster it, making your space a place you love to be, your home, your cubicle, whatever space we're talking about, your reading nook, where you rock your baby to sleep, the spaces where you spend hours of your day or important times of your day, make them a place you like to be with color, with decor, with windows, with candles. And there's so many ways that you can transform a space and you can make it your happy place. It's not just always the way it looks. Again, I know we can't always control the way something looks or how big it is or whatever, but smells, your sense of smell is a huge part of place. And maybe you can control that with how a place smells. Textures, how a thing feels, blankets, the chair, softness, you know, whatever appeals to you in that realm. These things really, really matter. Now listen, again, I've talked about this for years and years, but how it affected me in this last year is in the fall, I got it in my head. It sort of started coming up for me really regularly that I wanted to move. And this was a surprise. (laughs) We'd lived in our home since my daughter was six months old, she's 11. So we'd lived there 10 and a half years and we loved it. It's in a great part of town. We decorated it to the nines. It felt good. We, you know, we didn't have any plans to move. And, it, you know, we'd never call it our forever home, but there was no plan in place to move. Well, for lots of reasons, I outlined some of these in a recent secret post. It's my newsletter that goes out that has this kind of personal stuff in it. In my secret post, I wrote more about this, but there were lots of reasons we decided to move or at least to start looking for another house. And the primary one was, even though we loved our physical house, it wasn't in the area where our main community lived. My kids go to school really far from that house, and most of our school community lived a lot closer to the school, sports community, same I didn't mind doing the schlep. I don't mind being in the car that much. But during COVID, when a big thing happened that put Angelinos all completely at home under strict stay-at-home orders, I felt really far away from most of my people. I felt like from a community perspective, I just wanted to be in proximity 
to our closest friends and to the people who've become like family to us. It also made me think about how we schedule our days and how we live out our lives. Because again, being home all the time and taking so many things off of our plate during the quarantine made you start to realize like how much more you wanted to add back onto it as the world started to open up. Did we want to live that same type of life? We have a chance to reset. And I realized I didn't want to be in the car so much anymore. I didn't want to spend my time in that same way. I wanted to be closer to our people. I wanted to carpool and, you know, be more like a village. And so there were just a lot of practical logistical considerations around thinking that we might want to live in another part of town. Another logistical part of possibly moving was our old house that had so much character and was really quirky and fun. It was almost 100 years old. It was built in the 1920s. It needed a lot of work. We had done a lot of work to it over the years, but it was really kind of on the edge of needing some real overhauls in certain areas which we could have done. We've put a lot of love into that place, but I'm so enjoying my work life now. And I work from home. I didn't want to have renovations happening in my home. Those are almost like a second job. I didn't want the disruption. We went back and forth on those aspects of making some changes to the house versus finding a whole new house. But lastly, when it came down to it, there ended up being some emotional reasons that I realized I wanted to start somewhere fresh. I have talked a little bit about the fact that our home was robbed in 2018. And that was actually a very difficult time for me. And I didn't put any bad energy or anything, you know, negative on the house after that time. Surprisingly, I thought I would. If you had told me that that was going to happen to us, I would have thought we would need to move right away. My husband was afraid that that was the conclusion I was going to come to after that hard thing happened. But I didn't feel that way. I loved our house. I was comfortable in our house for years after that time. I realized though, when I started opening my mind in the fall of 2020 to moving, I realized then that maybe I did have some feelings around that incident and not tied to the house at all, because again, I really, really don't. But it did seem like I was coming to the close of a growth season or something for myself. And I really wanted to have a fresh start in a fresh space. I wrote most of my book in that old house. I raised my babies in that house. And that was amazing. It was beautiful, but it had been a decade and it felt like we are entering a new phase of our life. And this is the emotional part after I've given you all the logistical parts, but we are entering a new phase of our life where... I would like to start it somewhere else. We're about to enter the teen years with my daughter. I feel like my work is entering a new phase. My husband Jeff's work is entering a new phase. Like I wanted us to just sort of change up our outsides to reflect what was sort of happening within our family on the insides, if that makes sense. So that was actually an unexpected thing. Maybe it wasn't so unexpected that I decided I wanted to move, what really became unexpected when I was 41 was that we decided we would start looking after Christmas, the beginning of 2021, we would start looking for a new house and we would hope maybe to move maybe in the beginning of 2022. We thought it might take us a year to find a house. And then if we found a house that needed some changes, like a fixer upper or something, you know, it was my hope that maybe if we started the search for a new place to live, you know, we would give ourselves like a year 
ish for that change to actually unfold. Well, what happened was, because this is, you know, (laughs) this is how life goes. It's never, it always either takes way longer than you think something's going to take, or in this case, way shorter than you think it's going to take. We found a beautiful new house within three weeks of looking, and we were able to move in late April, early May. So that was a change that happened a lot faster for our family than we were anticipating. But now that we're here, we're in our new house. There are still boxes everywhere. I'm really taking my time getting settled here. But just being in a new space, it really does change things. It really does make a difference in how you feel and, you know, shedding some old stuff, leaving behind some old baggage, leaving behind a season of our family to start new a little bit. It really just did make me learn what I've always said is true, how much your space matters. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free. It is also pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. Y'all know that I love to play games on my phone to unwind, and I am always looking for a new one to download. And I recently ran across Two Dots. And I want to tell you about it. Two Dots is a free-to-download, puzzle-based game that involves connecting dots through relaxing puzzles while unlocking levels and collecting prizes along the way. There are different gameplay modes to make the experience unique and exciting with every single puzzle. There are over 5,000 distinct puzzles with various power-ups and special dots ready to earn as you move through the levels. The in-app music and visually stimulating interface provide a soothing experience when you just want to relax and unwind. Not only is Two Dots free to download, but it can also be played without internet connection. So playing on the go offline is a breeze. And if you don't want to play alone, you can challenge your friends on Facebook, as well as connect with the larger Two Dots community for even more engagement. If you're looking for the perfect game to help you relax, but also keep you engaged, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS. Okay, number four... Number four is take note of your most important conversations. Now, if you've been listening here for a while, if you listen to my regular journal prompts or end of the year episodes or anything like that, you will not be surprised that I'm talking about this because I'm often asking you to reflect back on the best conversations you had 
in the year or in your life. And this just continues to prove to be a really important thing to document on a personal level. So I'm also often encouraging you to document sort of like world events, not trust that a journalist or a historian will get it right in terms of how you experienced something, anything, but instead to make your own notes to be passed down or for you to read later or whatever. And that's still true on like a global scale or on a current events level. I still really believe that. But on a personal level, sometimes people get a little bit stuck on what they're supposed to document about themselves. Like they don't see what is so special about their own life, whether to journal or share or whatever. And one thing that no matter what our life circumstances like, no matter what our life looks like, one thing that we all share is that we all have conversations. And in the course of a year, we have important conversations. And for me, looking back on the last year, I feel like I had some of the most important conversations of like my last decade. And I documented some of them in my secret tapes. This is not a plug for that. You're either interested in my secret tape interviews or you're not. If you think you are, they are available for you to listen to, all of them, over on my private podcast called The Secret Stuff. But on a purely personal level, not for the fact that I knew that those conversations were being recorded and that they were most likely going to be public, But just having those conversations that I had with the people that I wrote about in my book, they are conversations that are just some of the most special, some of the most meaningful of the last, you know, 10 years probably. And I worried almost when I was recording them that, you know, the what could be performative aspect of that, like we were both aware, everyone I'm talking to, we're very aware that there's a mic on, that that would change the conversation's specialness or even the connection that I felt with the person or people I was talking to because there's a microphone on. And I'm not going to say that the microphone didn't affect anything. Maybe in some instances, we were extra careful with the way we worded things or something like that. But that's just like a technicality. The feeling, the connection, the emotion that I had in talking to these people that I've written about, who didn't ask to be written about, who were showing up in my book, sometimes years and years and years after we had had a relationship. Sometimes, in the case of my family, being very, very private people who have a family member, me, who's not so private. Having those conversations, whether it was a reunion or whether it was like some clarifying discussion, if you will, like with my parents or my siblings, it was just like such an enormous part of the book release process for me personally. Like that closed a loop for me in my life that I will just never forget. And then outside of those conversations, those recorded conversations, of course, there were also some really important moments with other people in the last year that You know, I took pages and pages of journal notes of afterwards. One that really sticks out is one of the friends that I sort of had a little bit of an issue with. I've talked about this before. Last summer, we had a conversation where we came together 
And because of COVID, it was the first time we had physically seen one another in months and months. And we sat outside and we sat really far apart because this was a long time ago, like in the fall. And we had to have this really hard conversation about our friendship and sort of basically come to terms with if our friendship was going to continue or not. And this was so emotional. This was really just a hard thing to do. You know, I I like almost emotional thinking about it right now because I love this person. They love me. And we worked it out. And actually, we're doing great now, like eight, nine months later. But to go through that with someone that you care about, we had a lot of words for one another. And, you know, it was rough. So I had these conversations that were extra joyful and really, really, you know, heartfelt and meaningful. And, you know, I carried a smile for days afterwards. And then I had these other conversations, numerous ones actually, that were hard. And I'll remember in a different way. And they were necessary. And some of them were really painful. But I had them. And so when I'm thinking back on the last year and remembering these conversations and making note of them as a highlight or low light or just as something notable for the year I was 41, it paints a picture doesn't it? Yours will too when you think about it. It paints a picture of what you were going through during that time. These conversations never happen in a vacuum. So there's a lot of other relationship pieces that are at play when you come to a conversation table like this. There's world events at play. You know, some of the hard conversations that I had when I was 41 revolved around what was happening on the world's stage, if you will, and disagreeing with people about that. And so that might be a conversation that sticks out for you too. But on a birthday, when I'm thinking back of like the most important moments of the last year, it's not just the people or it's not just the fun things that happened or, you know, whatever, these kind of very obvious moments that we all have in a year. It is these moments of connection or disconnection in conversation. And so my number four is to take note of those important conversations, something I just learned on a deeper level this year, to notice them, to not let them just slide by and try to you know sweep it under my emotional rug of, oh yeah, that was a weird conversation. Let's never think about that again. <laughs> I mean, there are some of those too, but really to hold space for those difficult minutes sitting across from someone else. Okay, number five. Number five is pay attention to your energy. So this could go in about a hundred different directions, but what I was really thinking when I was making this particular note is my morning routine. So I established my morning routine years ago, actually. And it's morphed a little bit over the years, like when I had babies that woke up really early that obviously changed the way my morning looked. When I had kids in school, which was not most of the last year, that also changed the way mornings looked. And I've done a whole episode on my morning routine and why I have chosen to do it the way I do, which is like 20 minutes of reading, journaling, affirmations, sitting in silence for five minutes. Like I have a whole like literal routine that takes about an hour all told. And for a long time, I did it every single weekday morning after my kids were at school on the bus. And I know, I know, morning routines, that's 
a luxury to be able to sit there and go through that whole thing for an hour. But it really did set the tone for my day. I had that time. I made time for it. And it was also predicated on the fact that I am a slow riser. So this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying pay attention to your energy. I am not a morning person. I'm not a natural morning person. If I could live by my own natural body clock, I would be a night owl. I can't be a night owl because, again, children. But the morning routine was a way for me to kind of ease into my day. It did tick off some important boxes for me. That reading time is like really crucial to me as a person, but also reading is part of what I consider part of how I feed my work. And the loose meditation time also sort of important to me. So it, it was all thoughtfully planned out and chosen based on my personality and my needs and this time that I had. Well, of course, when things are really busy, Like, you cannot spare an hour in the morning to journal. I mean, like, I get that. Because I have been working at kind of a crazy pace since the book launched, or even since before the book launched in January, a lot of times my morning routine in its completeness, the whole thing, got skipped or got really, really abbreviated because I just, I had to have every spare hour of the workday. Well, recently, I'd say in the past month to five weeks, my kids have gone back to school in person, like other things have changed that would have allowed for me to return to my former longtime morning routine schedule. And I found that it didn't make me feel the same way. Now, I don't mean like I didn't get the warm fuzzies around it. I meant I was antsy during that time a little bit because I had good energy. Like I had a lot of morning energy that I didn't used to have. And I was really ready to tackle in the early morning some of my biggest tasks, recording, writing, like some of the things that take my most dedicated energy. When I was doing my old morning routine, that energy would come about mid-morning or even after lunch, early afternoon. Those were good work times for me, energy-wise, well, I don't know what's happened. I don't know if it's because I'm aging, your body clock changes. I don't know if it's because we moved. And so the literal light in our bedroom in the morning is different. Like I've been waking up earlier naturally with the light. Like there's just, I don't know, who knows why. But I started to really pay attention to it. And here's like the main point of this is that you don't always have to do something just because you've always done it. Even if it's beneficial or it's worked for you or you like it or whatever, if there's a reason to change it or if there's something nagging at you to change it, it's okay to change it. And maybe that's simple for some of you, but it's not for me. I like things the way I like them. I like routine. When I find something that works, I will beat that thing to death. I will like do it till the end of time because it works. Why change it? I've also talked so much about my morning routine. And so in some ways I felt like, beholden to it because I've talked about it publicly. So to suddenly be like, guess what, everybody, I'm not doing my morning routine anymore. After I've spent years encouraging you to do a morning routine, it's just one more kind of hang up that I had in my head about, well, I can't stop doing my morning routine. (laughs) Like, how am I going to anchor my day? When am I going to get that nonfiction reading time in? When am I going to get my journaling or my affirmations or my silence in? And it really sort of made me feel like, Okay, is this whole morning thing a fraud? Like, (laughs) what is happening? Why is this changing? Have I outgrown it? Like, what is happening? 
And so I was already kind of noticing it. When I heard my friend, Kendra Adachi, the lazy genius, talk about following your energy or paying attention to your energy in terms of your menstrual cycle. Now, I'm not, we're not going off into a whole tangent here, but just hearing her talk about how she plans, how she has started after reading a book or listening to something that really piqued her interest, she's really planning like her work life, doing her most important work projects during the week when she literally has the most energy. And she doesn't want to plan to be doing some really important high energy work product during the week of her period when she has significantly less energy. So hearing her talk about that was a little bit of a light bulb moment for me in terms of my morning routine, which is less of a commitment because we're not talking about a whole week. We're not talking about tracking a cycle. We're just talking about when you have your best energy in the day to do your best work or in a bigger picture way, when you need certain routines to get you through different seasons of life, etc. So for me, noticing that the morning routine after years and years wasn't quite working for me on an energetic level, that I wanted to give my best morning energy to something else. It didn't mean that I had to abandon the whole thing. One of the things that I've always preached about the morning routine is that you can anchor your day around something like that, reading or journaling, affirmations, silence, whatever it is. You can anchor your day however that works for you. If you have a mid-morning break at work or your lunch hour or like in the hour before you start cooking dinner, I mean, I don't know, everybody's different. However you want to use that time to ground yourself, it can be any time of day. So then I was like, well, I'm going to take my own advice. I'm going to stop doing this in the morning. I'm going to get a couple of solid hours of work in when I'm feeling good. And then when my attention is waning or when I need to just sort of change it up, stand up from my computer or whatever, go sit in another part of the house, then I can do a few items from that routine. It doesn't matter if it's morning or not. So anyway, of the last things in the year of me being 41, that one is quite a bit more recent. That's only been something I've been thinking about and working around for the past couple of months. But I felt like it was worth noting, especially in the summer, when all of our routines, if we're parents or teachers or anything where summer routines change kind of radically from the rest of the year, this is a good time to reevaluate some of our rhythms It's a good time to try something for a few weeks or whatever. It doesn't have to like become your whole new thing. It's just we're going to try it because it's summer. And for me, being in a new space with some new work projects and like there's a lot of new happening, right now is the perfect time for me to really pay attention to the way that I've been doing things. And if now's the time to change and why? You don't need a big deep why. But just not doing the same things over and over because you've always done them that way. It's a lesson for all of us, I think. Okay, number six. It's also a little bit about mindfulness, paying attention, being mindful. But number six is officially be mindful of who you take advice from. And it's going to be tied into number seven, which is don't give away your power. But let's start with number six and advice. You might think that at now 42, I would have really learned where to seek advice or if it's unsolicited, when to really hear it or not. You might think that at 42, I would trust my intuition 
more in the first place and wouldn't seek out or receive unsolicited advice much at this stage. If you thought that, you would be wrong because I do still question my intuition and I often, too often really, seek advice outside of myself when I'm feeling uncertain or when I do have kind of intuition on something but I don't like what my intuition is saying, I will seek affirmation or a dissenting opinion from someone else or the internet or like, you know, multiple other people. And this doesn't serve me. And if you do this, it doesn't serve you. I found myself a few times when I was 41 taking advice or really listening deeply to advice from people who I cared about. That's why I listened to them or I respected their professional opinion or something like that. But really, just because you like a person or you resonate with one part of something that they teach doesn't mean that their advice is for you because you are not aligned with them in what you're asking. You don't want to ask someone who lives in a really modern, minimalist glass house that is stunning, looks like it belongs in architectural digest, but they are not the person to seek advice from on your traditional, loud, floral, more is more decor style. And I know that the minimalist glass house person is smart and their home is just breathtaking, but they are not going to give you the right answer on what kind of pillows should go on your couch. They are not. You are not aligned in what you want your home to be. And this is a hard pill to swallow, folks, because most of the time when we are seeking or listening to advice, it's not about pillows. It's about something important. And so if you are not aligned with the person, if you do not have the same taste as that person, if you do not make decisions in the same way, or you don't have the same priorities or values, you can get all tangled up in listening to their advice because you like them. You respect them. What they're doing works for them. So it's really hard to see. It takes a lot of discernment to see that it doesn't work for you. And sometimes you feel guilty because you want it to work for you. You want them to be pleased with you even, but it's not a fit. Now, listen, I'm not saying that you shouldn't seek advice outside of your own perspective or bubble. That is what is the most valuable about advice sometimes, right, is someone saying, hey, have you thought about this? And it's something you haven't thought about. Or if you've been spinning your own wheels in your own perspective for someone completely objectively to give you something to think about. That's all great. That's all fine and good. But too many times, and especially in the last year for me, I have sought advice from someone who didn't understand totally what I was asking. Or if they did understand it, They weren't doing things or they wouldn't do things the way that I would. And so their advice was not just unhelpful. If it was just unhelpful, I could just shrug my shoulders. I'm like, who cares? I'm like, I'm not listening to that. But instead, I got all tangled up in it because they had some really good points. 
and someone who makes some really good points, it's really hard to see that their points are like not in the same stratosphere as mine. Like a good point doesn't mean that it's going to work for me and my life and my family. So that's number six, be mindful of who you take advice from. And it goes hand in hand with number seven, and don't give away your power. So this one has been bouncing around in my brain for years now. I think because I have a tendency to assert power when I'm feeling the most powerless. I do this across the board. I do this when I'm parenting. You know, I'm the most angry and the most yelly at my kids when I'm worried about something, when I'm in fear. You know, I really, really get on to them. A lot of times the root of it is because I'm scared about something I have no control over and it comes out as anger. And I get the most snarky when I feel like I don't have any standing in a situation. So by this, I mean like I might be really gossipy or really like say something kind of gross about someone or another situation when I'm feeling like I don't have a place in that group or I don't have my own standing anywhere. And so it's it comes out as me being ugly about a person or a situation because really I'm feeling on the outside. I'm feeling like I don't have any power over how people are thinking about me or talking about me. And so I aim some kind of a dagger at someone else. So I choose in that moment to sort of act powerful or something when I'm feeling my most powerless. But another thing I do, almost like the flip side of that is, instead of asserting some kind of false power, I sometimes just give away a decision that should have been mine. Or I let someone take up so much space in my life, so much emotional space or or just so much energy and don't stand up and say, you can't do that. You can't say that. You can't be this way or whatever it is. I've given them the power. They have all the say in how much they're in my life and where we go eat dinner and like what the decisions are because I've just been exhausted by it or I feel insecure about it or I defer to them because they have taught me that they have all the power in this situation and so I have to acquiesce to it. Now, I'm not trying to speak all in vague terms here because this is really real world stuff, this power thing. And I think that women especially, because we want to be pleasing or because we feel like we don't have the same amount of experience as someone else or whatever, we get into work situations, you know, business or professional situations, and of course, relationships where we feel powerless and we're not. When we feel like we can't assert our power, we can't set a boundary, we can't come back in a work situation and say, this is absolutely unacceptable. We can't make decisions about our own finances or contracts or, you know, home or whatever, because someone is saying to us that we might get fired or we don't make good decisions or it will just be easier if they do it. Don't give your power away. 
I don't want everything in my life to be a power struggle. The most powerful people I know, and I mean this like across the board, the most powerful people I know do not tell you that they are powerful. They are very quiet about it. Their power is something that's happening behind the scenes or it's happening in unseen ways that like I couldn't even explain to you except they are the ones who are controlling things, moving needles, etc. People who are bombastically powerful or powerfully speaking are usually not holding that much control over anything. And if they are, it's as equally rooted in the insecurity that I spoke of earlier that when I try to get all like puffed up and powerful, it's because I'm usually afraid. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born Sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. Or feeling insecure. Same is happening when other people do this. So if you're in a situation where this rings true, remember that you have all the power in the world to say no to someone, to say that is not acceptable to me, to say you may not speak that way, to say I don't have to put up with this. And it's not like, I feel like those are all sort of like abuse examples or something where someone's like really being combative of you. A lot of times this power thing that I'm talking about, it's not combative. You have very quietly and maybe without even noticing given up your power to someone who has all just as quietly taken it. So this year at 41, in all kinds of ways, and I feel like this actually started when I was 40. I feel like my work life started to change. I feel like I grew a lot more confident in myself and cared less about what people thought, but in a healthy way, not like in a toxic way. I don't care what anybody thinks because healthy people do care what certain people think. You know, they have like an appropriate amount of care When I turned 40, I feel like I shed a lot of those unnecessary cares and I got a lot more confident in my work life and like all those things. So it started when I was 40, but at 41 is when it really played out. So again, I'm talking about work contracts and relationships and then a lot of stuff in our life that has been in upheaval. Maybe, for example, around our move, you know, you're dealing with a lot of decisions, a lot of legal minutiae. A lot of vendors, both in the old house and the new house, and like it can very quickly get away from you that you have control over your decisions, your finances, your stuff. And so I know for me, I feel like I've said this to others, and I know for myself also going forward, 
I feel like it's an, a refrain that I have said to my friends as I've watched their various life situations and I've preached it to myself. Don't give your power away. Remember who you are. Remember what you're capable of. It's generally so much more than we imagined. Okay, number eight. There are things that will make your life easier. Use them. I had a lot of things come up in the last year where I realized that I was operating from a really old way of thinking that I wasn't conscious of, but it sort of seemed to be a little bit of a theme sometimes. It would come up in therapy, it would come up in my house, in my relationships, whatever, that I thought harder was better. I thought if things were difficult, that meant you were really working on it. And that when things were easy, when things flowed, that was a fluke. Or that was something that couldn't be repeated and couldn't be counted on because everyone knows you need to work hard and it has to feel like hard work. If it is easy, it isn't as good. You know, it's not as good a quality. And also, maybe you're not being responsible. If something is too easy, like there's like a trick in it or something like that. And then before I became super conscious of this, or maybe this was already sort of percolating in my mind, I chose the word ease for 2021. Ease was my word of the year, still is my word of the year, because I felt like 2020, for all reasons, global and on a personal level, had been difficult, had been the opposite of ease. I felt like I really struggled through it on all fronts. And I wanted 2021 to be full of more ease and flow. And when I concentrated on that and really made it a point of making the easier decision. So I'm faced with two decisions. We can do this or we can do that. And I mean, everyday decisions, what to have for dinner, if the kids should do activities or not, all kinds of little everyday things, not just big things. Ease was the choice I was going to make because that's what I'm focusing on for this year. So I consistently for months and still am chose the easier path. Instead of making it harder on myself, it highlighted to me how much I make it harder on myself for no real reason. Like if you need a new bra, get a new bra. If you've been working with a broken crock pot for years because it seems like the frugal responsible thing to do because it mostly works get a new crock pot please it's not about the spending money i'm not trying to get anyone to spend a bunch of money but we're making things harder for ourselves we're keeping a scorecard that no one else is and there are things that will make your life easier or sometimes choosing the path of least resistance is the right path I don't know, somehow I got the message that choosing the path of least resistance was like the bad way, was like the lazy way or the uneducated way or like, I don't know, which wasn't as good because you weren't working so hard. That the really valuable people are swimming upstream and changing the world. I do not think that is true anymore. After six months of living with my word of the year ease, where I've really, you know, obviously I haven't been able to use it in every single circumstance, clearly, life is life, but where I have chosen ease over not ease, where I have chosen ease over difficulty as many times as possible, 
you can't imagine how transformative it is. I actually need to do an entire podcast episode on this, and I will because it's really been eye-opening. But if there is something in your life that will make it easier, and it's within your means to do so, why not do it? You know, accept the help that's being offered to you. Don't feel like you have to do everything yourself. Replace the thing that's broken, that hasn't been working for a year and is really like making your kitchen life a pain. Shell out the $4.99 for the app that's going to help you whatever it's going to help you do instead of talking yourself out of it. Again, this isn't about money, although I do think a lot of us have certain tangles around this. We really snag on the money portion of it. I also feel like that people in my life noticed when I started to bend towards ease. My husband for sure noticed it, and we talked about it the other night on a date night, that my nature of like making pro and con lists, overanalyzing everything, thinking things through, I have always felt like that was doing due diligence, like that's a responsible thing to do. Releasing that mindset a little bit, not entirely, but releasing a lot of that mindset of spinning out on, did I make the right decision? When the differences are often kind of minuscule, honestly, like the differences between choosing this kind of whatever and that kind of whatever, maybe you're looking at a quality difference, maybe you're looking at a price difference, but we exert so much energy That we are A, giving our power to these things and these decisions. We're giving our power away. And I just don't think it is serving any of us. And it will change my whole mood and personality and like weekend. When I started to move towards ease, I am going to let my friend take my kid to soccer, even though I actually feel guilty because she's done it three weeks in a row. But she's genuinely offered. She's assured me that if she felt like it was too much, she would tell me. I got to let it go. It's very helpful to me that she does it. The path of least resistance here is not to shake up my day and spend two hours waiting in the car for soccer practice. The easier decision here is to let her do it. And then on a day when I have less going on, I insist that I take both boys next time or I take her out for a great dinner as a thank you or or however that's going to work out. But accepting the help there... And trying real, real hard not to overthink it. Again, this is ease. This is making my life easier, which makes everything else feel better. I feel like I'm not constantly spinning out. I am a happier, more joyful wife and mom. I'm making an easier decision. Here's another example. I needed to buy a template for something for my website. All the templates were the same price. I could not pull a trigger on buying this template. For weeks, I would look at the website, I would go through, I would do pros and cons, I'd watch YouTube reviews on the thing. I mean, it was like a thing. Finally, one day, I was like getting close to a deadline, like I needed to make a decision. And I just centered myself on ease. This actually truthfully happened before I'd chosen the word of the year. This was at the end of 2020. But I knew that I was already like trying to work on this as a muscle, this ease thing. And I was like, I'm just going to approach this with fresh eyes. I'm going to look at all the templates. I'm going to pick which one is my first attraction that just seems like the easiest and flowiest. And I'm not going to be distracted by every other template and all of its benefits. I did it. It was done. The decision went out of my mind. I never thought about it again until like 
this moment using it as an example. But when I look back, I know I lost hours and hours to researching that decision that didn't really matter. So when it's possible, choose ease. Don't overthink it, as Ann Bogle would say in her book. Choose ease. Number nine, make your own celebrations. I'm not going to give too, too many words to this because I did a whole episode a few months ago called How to Celebrate Yourself, where I talked about a lot of this stuff. But if I'm looking at my year as a whole, this is a really big one. And so I wanted to put this in as one of my final thoughts is choose to celebrate yourself and your people. But here's the kicker, because a lot of us are like, sure, yeah, great, celebration, all for it. Here's the big kicker, without controlling every piece. So do you see how this is all tying together, which I didn't even mean? This all ties back to going with ease, not giving away your power, paying attention to your energy. <laughs> like a lot of these lessons are interwoven, aren't they? It's funny how we just seem to be learning a lot of the same things over and over in every aspect of our life. But in this celebrations one, I know you saw or heard me talk about my book release day and how that all came together and how I was at home alone in my big red dress and it was the most amazing day of my life and it was sort of an accident and I just unashamedly celebrated myself all day. Well, that was a public-facing celebration, but let me tell you a little bit about a private celebration that taught me this lesson on a deeper level, not deeper, on a different level, I should say, and that was Christmas Eve. So every year in a normal year, we have the most wonderful Christmas Eve at our house. We have friends that have come for 10, 12 years, however long we've been doing it. We have these amazing traditions, and I really go all out. We decorate. It's like a beautiful wonderful Christmas Eve celebration tradition with some people in our life that are friends, but they're like family. Well, in COVID, we couldn't do that. We weren't comfortable with it. Our friends weren't comfortable with it. This was pre-vaccinations. And so we really had to adjust that day. And we still did a Christmas Eve. We were outside in big coats and I served delicious food, but I think it got cold before we even got to the table. And I was stressed about the whole thing. I was disappointed that we couldn't have a regular holiday situation. It was at the end of a very long year last year. I was emotional and discontent and, you know, it was the holidays. I didn't show that on the outside, but that's how I was feeling on the inside. And I had to, just by nature of the thing, release so much control over what holidays 2020 looked like because of this pandemic. And I had to release expectations and traditions and all of these things. And we sat outside in a big socially distant circle and we were wrapped in blankets and coats because it's California, but it was still a little chilly. And I knew in my heart, I wouldn't, I wasn't totally letting myself think it at the time, but I kind of knew that it might be our last Christmas Eve in that house, this house where we had had all these amazing other Christmas Eves. And I could not bring myself to feel like it was special. I just couldn't bring myself to feel like it was a warm, fuzzy moment because I was all caught up in all the things that it wasn't. And only in retrospect, only when I look back at pictures, only when I had our dear friends say to me later, I'm so glad I got to see your face on Christmas Eve or whatever, did I feel like I'd really miss the forest for the trees. I'd really miss the boat. Like all, all of those things that you miss, I'd missed them because I was disappointed. 
and I couldn't see what was special about it. And I couldn't let myself enjoy what did indeed turn out to be our last Christmas in that house. And possibly one of the more memorable ones because it was so weird and cold. So when I'm thinking about the celebrations that I had when I was 41, which were many because of my book and life and regular things, I realized how much our celebrations matter. You know, did we all realize that in the pandemic and quarantine? How much being with our people matters? How much toasting to a moment or to a milestone or to a human matters? And we don't need to control every aspect. And sure, we might sometimes be disappointed by things at the same time that we're toasting other things. But it's okay. We're going to mark our celebrations. Celebrations are going to be even more important going forward than they ever were because we've learned, we've all learned collectively, that the whole world can change on a dime. And so celebrate with your people. Okay, number 10, last and final, and maybe not what I expected to say, but number 10 is it's okay to come back around after you've left something. Now, I know that there's a lot of messaging, a lot of books, a lot of podcasts, a lot of advice around there about letting things go, letting people go, stepping out of circles where you're not wanted, eliminating toxic people and situations from your life. And uh, I've soaked in all of that messaging. I think that you hear those things when you need to hear them, when you are in a situation you need to step out of. I've been there. I needed those messages. I heeded them. And that's all great. And if that's where you are and you need encouragement to step away from something that isn't for you right now, I hope that you are actively planning to do that. And that's hard. It's especially hard when, you know, you're the only person in your community who's stepping back or when you feel like an outcast or any number of reasons that that is hard and why there need to be a million books written on the topic of finding your people and cutting people out of your life and like all that stuff. But here's the other thing. And the thing that I hear talked about quite a bit less is that sometimes you need to go back to those places or let me rephrase you want to go back. Maybe it's neither a need nor a want, but those things come back into your life and you let them. This is also something that I've talked about in therapy a little bit because it feels real good to make a decision. It feels real, real good to make a declarative breakup with something. Even if there's pain around it, it feels good to, you know, feel like you're really taking a stand. There's a lot of ego involved if years later, Days later, months later, you take that person back. You quietly sit back in the pew. You raise your hand and ask to return to the circle. You secretly change your affiliation back to what it was. I don't know what you're dealing with. But number 10 is it's okay to come back around. When you make a decision for yourself that is best in that moment, you need to get out of that room or relationship. It doesn't mean it has to be forever. And coming back around, changing your mind, getting healthy and returning, opening your arms to someone else who left, I feel like those are the loops that we never see closed. We hear all these stories about people who left, took a stand, and really went their own way and 
rose up, (laughs) all these things. Those are good. I like those stories. But sometimes you want to come back around or you're more than willing to open the door for someone else to come back around. Just think about it. If that's you, just think about it. Those are my 10 things about being 41 as I march into being 42. There are just a couple of other topics that felt really tender to me. I said a few more words on a few other things about the last year in my life over at Secret Stuff, my private podcast called Secret Stuff. You can get there by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secretstuff. But these were the 10 biggies that I wanted to share with you today. I hope that it made you think. I hope that it made you want to run to your journal. I hope that it made you realize that when it's your birthday month, it's time to get a little bit reflective. Thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate your shares of the show. And if you want to come tell me what you've been learning in the last year, whether or not it's your birthday, you don't have to be a Gemini. Please do come tell me something you have learned in the last year. The show is at 10 Things to Tell You. My personal Instagram is at laura.tremaine. Thanks so much for listening. Now go share something. Just listen to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.